Hello, hello, welcome and welcome back to the United Mates Football Podcast. As ever, I am joined by my co-host Joe, and we're both absolutely thrilled to have a special guest with us on the call as well. On top of that, we have some more music coming your way. The immensely talented Elsa Tully is going to be playing us out at the end of the show, so stick around for her single, Parasite. We do, of course, have an episode to get through first, and as I mentioned, a very special guest with us as well. Throughout his time in school and uni, today's guest held multiple football coaching and management positions, and even helped establish a student-run organization to oversee intramural sports at his alma mater. That would be George Washington University, where he picked up a degree in sports management during his spare time, he might even say, considering how busy he kept himself with extracurriculars. He's the former team operations manager of the Indy 11 Soccer Club, and more recently, he was the team liaison officer for Southampton FC and then head of player care at West Ham United. Currently, he's the founder and managing director of the Player Care Group, we welcome Hugo Schechter to the United Mates Football Podcast. Hugo, it is an absolute pleasure to have you with us. And how are you doing today? Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, really good bye there. So uh, yeah, no mistakes. So you're all good. But uh, yeah, no, great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, excited for it. Fantastic. Well, no, Hugo, it's great um, to have you with us. And we always start our episodes with an icebreaker for our guests. So mm. we have had a look through your Twitter page oh, and Instagram page as well. We've been doing some great social media stalking. And um, we noticed on your 30th birthday, you um, there's, a, there's a good image of you in one of your sort of brilliant shirts that you're known for wearing and you're eating a burger and there's a you know classic birthday cake next to you. Yeah. So um, we wanted to know, given that there's the sort of burger cake combination there, what is your favorite savory sweet food combination? Oh goodness! Um, I've seen I've seen on Instagram the um, where they do the Krispy Kreme burger instead of a bun. They have two Krispy Kreme donuts and like a bacon cheeseburger in the middle. And I can't say I've had that, but it's already my favourite without even having to try it. So probably something like that would be a, a good one. I think. <laughs> God, that does sound pretty good. Kai, what about you? Have you got a favourite savoury sweet food combo? I think even um, Snoop Dogg might have like a collaboration with the Krispy Kreme burgers over here or something <laughs> like that. So like, what could be better? But I'd say for me personally, living in the States these days, I'm a bit homesick for um, the sweet and salty popcorn combo. For some reason in America, they don't seem to offer that at the movie theaters. So um, yeah, literally just salty and sweet popcorn is my favorite sweet and savory combo. Joe, how's about yourself? Yeah, no, I like that as well. I think the only other one I could add is maybe, I don't know, a bit of salted caramel that seems to have been a bit of a flavour of the last few years. Um, you know, you can never go wrong with some salted caramel. Indeed. I was worried there when you started going through my Instagram because I've I, we actually had a, I paid a company to go through my Instagram and Twitter, like back to all <laughs> the tweets from 2007 when I was, uh, you know, 17. And so I was, I was very worried what you were going to pull up there. So I'm, I'm glad it was just a picture of me eating a burger and nothing offensive uh, <laughs> or aggressive or anything like that. So good. <laughs> now we, we're kind of big foodies on the show. So we typically oh, cool. uh, tend, to, tend to stick to, to that for the icebreaker. But now that we have oh, good, good. figured out our favorite savory and sweet combos, we're going to move on to some more personal questions for you, Hugo, about mm -hmm. um, getting started in your career and then also about your relationship with football in general. Yeah. So um. From what I can tell, it seems like you gravitated towards coaching over playing at relatively quite a young age. So yeah. I wanted to know what was it and perhaps what is it still about leading from the sidelines, so to speak, or being part of a team from the sidelines? What is it about that that you enjoy so much compared to being in the thick of the action, for instance, on the pitch? 
Well, I think my issue as a, as a kid was that I was never picked to be in the action. So it wasn't necessarily a choice that I turned down a, a lucrative playing career. It was that I didn't really ever get a chance. So, um, you know, our sports in, in school were participation based and everyone got a go, but then not everyone got to play games. And so I was end up just training a lot and just thought, you know what, I'm going to, I was never any good anyway. So I thought I'll, I'll focus on it. Actually, my first interest in football came through football manager or championship manager, I guess, as it was then where um, <clears throat> I actually, my family don't like football. I, my, no one in my family likes football except me. And so my, my friend brought it over one, one summer, I think it was. And we started playing. I didn't know any of the players and he kept beating me. So I was like, in the summer holidays, I'm going to go and get, uh, learn all about football, read all the magazines and get all the good players so that when we come back and play, I can beat him. So that's kind of how I got first into football as a sport. And then as a fan kind of grew. And then um, one of my teachers at, U- at school said, you know, I should do my coaching badges because that's kind of where he saw me succeeding more. And yeah, it kind of went from there. But I didn't really ever have a playing career to turn, turn down rather than it wasn't really a choice. It was more of a decision. How has that team bond evolved from being a coach to being for instance player care still sitting on the you know with with the team um during the games uh, do you still feel as kind of um involved in the action on the pitch as you did when you were strategizing it as a coach i mean obviously i've gone from coaching at like a you know club sport level at a college uh, as my peak to you know, a cup final on the bench as a staff member. So, you know, I, I think it's obviously different levels. And, and so I, I'm fully aware that my coaching credentials never get me at this level. Um, yeah, you feel a part of it, sure. I think, um, you know, you, we're all so invested in it, really, to not feel a part of it. You know, we I traveled to every game. I would be, you know, I must have worked 450s or so professional games. So, like, I've done a lot of games, you know, all around the world. We follow the team. So, yeah, you feel a part of it. You feel part of it when you win. You feel part of it when you lose. But... I think after a while you kind of not become numb to it, but like it doesn't affect you. Like it maybe does the players because like at the end of the day, like if we lose a game, it's, you know, it's, we're all partly responsible, but I'm not like, well, I've messed up here, you know, big time. But if we say, you know, say when I'm organizing the trip, say if I forgot to book the plane and then we lost the game because we didn't go up there or we turned late, then I would feel personally responsible. Mm. So, you know, I, I always believe in control of controllables. And, and I think, you know, it's, you feel a part of it. You feel a part of that team, you know, in, in the changing room at half time or after the game and, you know, going to like Wembley, I, it came up on my like uh, memories on this day when we beat Anfield, uh, beat Liverpool at Anfield at, at Southampton to go to the, the League Cup final and the celebrations in the changing room after that, you know, that's the sort of thing you never forget to be a part of that is, is amazing. But um, I don't think the emotion, like the ups and downs maybe get you as much when you're, when you're not playing. And then I guess quickly before I let Joe jump in to use the, the chicken and egg type scenario, mm. but instead when it comes to hospitality and football for you personally, mm. Hugo, which came first or which comes first? Are you primarily somebody who lives and breeds hospitality and football seemed like the most fun industry mm. to jump into? Or did you always want to be involved in football specifically in one way or another? Yeah, I think definitely the latter. But now, like, I don't really watch football. I, I would say having worked in it for eight years, it's not my love anymore. It's my job. And so I'm, I enjoy my job. I'm passionate about my job, but I'm not, I'm not there like, Oh, it's Burnley against Aston Villa on TV. I better be watching that. You know, like I would rather go watch a movie or, or, or do something else. So like, I think 
I, I'm good at my job. I like my job. I'm very passionate about my job, but I don't, I've, I've no longer a fan that I was in college or in, in university or, or whatever. That's part of me is kind of gone, which I think is actually a shame, but yeah, more I'm, I'm focused on my job than I am a lover of football anymore. That's interesting, Hugo. And I mean, obviously, we've spoken about your background in coaching a bit prior to player care. And obviously, like you said, now for you, this this is ultimately a job and it, it sort of changed the way that you kind of, I guess, interact with the sport. But yeah. given that, you know, you did coach to a fairly high level and given that in today's game, there are um, coaches that don't necessarily play the game that end up at quite a high level is there any part of you that wishes that you stuck stuck it down the coach route and see if you could have gone higher up or was or was that never really something you you wanted at that at that top level I mean yeah I wanted it sure I would love to have been a manager in a Premier League club but I think a I don't think I think you really need to live and breathe football for that to happen and I think you know one of the things that struck me you know working with Manuel Pellegrini who is you know I mean he's 60 something he's he's been in the game for so long We'd finish the game, we'd get on the bus and he'd start the game and watch it on his on his laptop straight away for you know from start to finish. He'd just finish the game. And I'm like, the last thing I want to do after get on that bus, I want to watch a film. I want, you know, just like let's let's go home. And he's there and they're like taking notes and everything like that. And I'm like, at for 65 years old, I will not be doing this. You know, so like I, I don't know if I had that passion to really do it at the elite level. I think actually Gary Neville spoke about that recently, is that he loves football, but he doesn't live and breathe it. And so that's probably why he, you know, admits he, he wasn't probably a good manager. But I think, I think, yeah, you know, would I like to be a manager? Sure. But I think that time came and gone. I think I realized as well, you know, I was coaching out in the States more than I was in the UK. And, you know, you know, do I really want to move to the University of North Dakota to be an assistant coach on $20,000 a year to, you know, then get fired and then move to, you know, Arkansas? No, no offense to North Dakota or Arkansas, but it was like, that's not where I really saw my life going. And that's what not really what I wanted to do. So I, I just kind of saw that the ceiling was higher in, in, in the administrative side. I didn't really think player care at the time, but, you know, I felt like I could do more and I was better at that. So I thought that's what I'd focus on rather than pursuing something that may be more interesting or, or not more interesting, but more, you know, glamorous, I would say, but, probably I didn't have that high ceiling and I would not be where I am today. I've not had the experience I've had today. If I think I would pursued coaching more, more strongly. Mm. It's very fascinating to hear about Pellegrini, what a like student of the game he was and still, I guess is to, to this day, but um, jumping away from coaching back to the player care and still sticking with the States as you were, you were touching on as well. Do you feel like heading over to George Washington university and studying in the States gave you a leg up on your peers in the sense that, player care and the overall sort of glitz and glamour that surrounds professional sports in America is in many ways, you could say generations ahead of the UK and even more so given that player care within football in England is still seemingly a growing industry. Um, mm. Yeah. Did you find that as an advantage? And then beyond that, did you sort of see yourself as somewhat of a trailblazer for player care in England? Um, I think moving to GW, I, I don't think that was a decision about player care so much. That was more just, I wanted a new experience and I think it's helped me because I moved from the UK to the US, which is a, it's a move, but it's not like the biggest cultural shock ever. You know, there's definitely bigger culture shocks. So, but I had an understanding of what it was like to be, you know, not really know how things work, not really know how to do things. And it kind of gave me a better experience of that going forward. You know, when I brought into my work and what I've tried to do is 
everything I do is try and learn something from it. Um, it's interesting, player care in America is very different. Um, like MLS is probably behind the Premier League, the NFL, NBA, they kind of have very different setups. So one of the things I'm trying to do with my business, which I'm sure we'll mention later, is is to try and work out where where can the English model be better than the American model? Where can I sort of bring my expertise across? Um, but yeah, you know, it was it was there weren't many kids from my my school in England who went to American unis, and you know, for me, I've always been that guy who, as soon as I get a bit comfortable, I want to push myself. So you know, getting comfortable in England at high school level, I could have just stayed in English uni, drunk for three years and done nothing, and instead I've decided to move across the world. I didn't know anybody in deep Washington DC and, and start afresh and. The same, I did that when I got comfortable at Southampton, I moved to West Ham. And when I got comfortable at West Ham, I started my own business. So for me, I'm someone who's always trying to push and, and do the next thing. I'm not going to be a guy who sits in the industry for 20 years and, and does the same thing. No, that sounds um, sounds like a smart approach. Your um, your idea of sort of going to uni and drinking for three years sounds quite um, accurate. What I did down in Exeter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, <did, laughs> I managed to do a few other bits and bobs too. But um, it's now time for um, a game. And it's actually one of our favourite games. It's called Who Are You? So essentially, Hugo, you and Kaitel are going to have to... There's three players I'm going to give you. and we'll, yeah. I'll, I'll basically give you one clue. And then between the two of you, you're going to have to guess who the player is. And you can ask as many questions as you like. Okay. So for the first player, my clue is he played for Southampton whilst you were working at Southampton. And obviously there's a lot of players. So yeah, ask as many questions as you want. Um, is he English? He is English, yes. Cool. Okay. Does he still play for Southampton? He does indeed, yeah. Is it James Will Prowse? No, but I, I'm a big fan of Will Prowse, but no, sadly not him. Uh, is he a defender? Mm, not a defender, but, you know, he, he plays close to them. Okay. Um, so a defensive midfielder, perhaps? Yeah, think, think go backwards in the pitch, Ron. Oh, a goalie. Oh, Fraser. For, I mean, you, you, you say you work that out. No, not, not Fraser. He's had a bit of a renaissance recently, but no, not him. Alex McCarthy? Ah, there we go. Yeah. Alex McCarthy. <laughs> <laughs> He's had, I'd say, a pretty um, good career at Southampton. 88 appearances in the league after, God, he had a lot of loans earlier on. But yeah, no. Um, he came in as number two and, and kind of when Fraser had a bit of a tough spell, he came in and, you know, hasn't really been knocked out since. So yeah, fair play to him. Yeah. No, he's yeah. done well. So there we go. That's the yeah. first player. Second player, similar kind of thing. This player um, played for West Ham when you were at West Ham. <laughs> Is he still at West Ham? No, actually. He's left now. Mm. Is he in the Prem still? He's not. Okay. Is he in China? No, in fact, I don't think he's anywhere at present, bizarrely. Like without a club or retired? I actually think he's just unattached. I don't think he's retired. Okay. Is he, did, he, did he play at Man City? He didn't, know, But what I will say, he, he has played for one other Premier League club in his career. I, I, were you thinking Nasri? I was thinking Nasri, but now yeah, I'm thinking yeah. Patrice Evra. Okay. Not Patrice Evra. I'll give you one more clue. I don't want to give too many, but the other team he played for in the Premier League has a very, very similar kit to West Ham. Aston Villa? Indeed. Uh, Carlos Sanchez. There we go. Carlos Sanchez. Yeah. The forgotten man, Carlos Sanchez. Yeah. yeah I would have got there eventually, I think. <laughs> yeah, he's um, yeah, it's had quite a tough time at West Ham and then 
Yeah, he's had a good career, but it didn't really work out for him in the Premier League. But yeah, Carlos Sanchez was um, the West Ham yeah. man. So we've got one more. Yeah. And the clue for this is this guy, he, he wasn't at West Ham or Southampton when you were there, but he has played for both West Ham and Southampton. Hmm. Who is it English? This decade. He was like a noughties player. Um, yeah, he, he played in the whatever the last decade was called, but that was more sort of at the end of his career. He, Kai, he was born in England, but he actually represented Scotland. Southampton, West Ham. I'm not a Southampton or a West Ham fan, so it makes it <laughs> If I haven't worked with them, I don't really know. Um, is he, yeah, is he defending? I don't know. Centre midfielder, and the only other clue I'll give you is he's also played for Southampton's rivals, Portsmouth. Hayden Mullins. No, but it's kind of similar player to him in some ways in playing style. He, he's been relegated from the Premier League with Southampton and West Brom. Okay, I know who it is. I know who it is. <laughs> it's Nige, right? Nige. It is Nige, yeah. Nigel Quasi. Nigel Quasi. Uh, okay. <laughs> I would never. I didn't know he played for West Ham, so I would never have got that one. Yeah, no, he didn't. He didn't play for long for them. You didn't play for long, to be fair. But yeah, you know, maybe I've gone too hard, but you know, you live and learn in who are you. Lovely. Well, we got there in the end. Um, I guess moving back to some conversation on player care, um, yeah. a bit more generally speaking. Um, so, Hugo, on sort of the, yeah, you were alluding to it earlier, but the current state of affairs when it comes to player care across the Premier League, do all of the clubs take it seriously? Or is there a big variation in how clubs handle their player care? And then I guess without necessarily naming names unless you feel like it are there certain big clubs with um either particularly good reputations or particularly bad reputations or even maybe non-existent um player care departments and would people be surprised um with some of these names i think uh there's 18 clubs in the premier league that have something so there are two that don't um i would say that it's still a quite a growing industry so there's not you know take it seriously i think it would be the wrong term but i think have it fully formed or fully planned out i think most don't um i think in terms of player care departments you've probably only really got five or six that really have a, a sort of structured department you've got a lot of clubs that have maybe one or two people who kind of just get stuff done um and then you've got two as i said that don't have it and then when you get to the championship maybe only about seven or eight actually have anything at all so it's, I mean, good good for my business. It's good that they don't have everything sorted out because if they did, then I would be twiddling my thumbs. But um, yeah, it's 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 still something that's kind of been worked out. And I think that's kind of where I'm coming in is trying to be that first mover. I'm the first one to have run the run the player care at two different clubs, which is which is you know, a lot of guys just tend to stay at their one club. They're kind of local and and do that for the whole career. So you know, it, it is what it is. But it's it's. It's changed a lot. It's got a lot better in the last eight years since I've been doing it. But also, I think the next eight years will be, you know, you'll see a massive, massive difference. Is there a level at which player care becomes a luxury as opposed, or is it always a necessity? And I guess um, if it is a necessity, what does that look like lower down the, the ladder, for instance? I mean, it's, it's, it's not a necessity anyway. I, I think it anywhere. I think it's a good decision financially because you know, the amount of money you spend on players that don't work out, it's a, you know, if you can make one player who's a 10 million pound player, you know, play half decently and get sold for 10 million pounds, great. If you sell it for 5 million pounds, it pays for my department for 50 years. So it's not so much that it's a necessity. I think it's, it makes a lot of sense. I think, 
you know, why would you spend 45 million pounds on a player and then just like let them sort their own stuff out or, or take that risk, really? You're taking a massive risk that these things don't work out. So it's not so much it's a necessity. It's, a, it's, it's that I think clubs should be doing it um, not only to do the right thing, but also for performance reasons or financial reasons. Um, and I think, you know, anything that can kind of, thinks about a player as a person is player care. It doesn't have to be a structure. It doesn't have to be anything. So it could be, you know, if you're, if you're say a non-league club and you don't have any money, you could say, right, well, when a player comes in, we're going to do a little welcome pack for them. You know, the West Ham one we've got is, is, you know, a 30 page leather bound binder with, you know, everything, but that's, that's probably top end, but you could do a, you know, a, a five page thing on Microsoft Word and do it for free. Um, you know, you could have a buddy system. So when a new player comes in, you know, that, and another player will take them out for dinner and the club will pay for that. You know, you're talking about 30 pounds at that, at that point. So, you know, it doesn't have to be like full-time departments on call 24 hours, you know, private jets or this stuff. It's, it can just be a sense of let's do something to make these players settle in more quickly and, and want to stay at the club. And, you know, it could be one of the, you know, the captain's wife inviting the other wives out for drinks one night, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be necessarily, you know, this, this massive all singing or dancing thing. And, you know, I spoke to a lower league club today who were interested in this and they said, look, we can't afford it, but what can you do? Little touches. I was like, well, look, there's definitely stuff we can do. So it's not necessarily a full-time person. It's just having that thought that actually these guys are human beings and, you know, they don't have the same problems as you and I in terms of, you know, worrying about paying bills and stuff like that. But, you know, they're under a massive amount of pressure. They're always in the public eye. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have an opinion on them and how good they are you know, without really knowing them, without really having that expertise. So I think it's it's definitely people got different problems, but there's so much you can do at, at any level, um, at any club. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And like you said, given that clubs are inve- at the, the high end, especially investing so much money in these players, why, why wouldn't you do everything to make sure they're settled um, in their environment? But I guess sort of moving on from that, given in, in your job, Hugo, you obviously spend a lot of time with the players and... Um, naturally get quite close to some of them. For instance, Southampton cult hero Maya Yoshida, I know that you um, got on with very well and there's been numerous other people too. But um, where do you kind of have to draw the line in terms of to be a really good player care person? How sort of how much distance do you have to have? Or, Or is it a case of kind of with some of the players you'll get more close and others you just have to work in a way that sort of suits them best? I think the important thing is that both the club and the players are happy. If, if all the players are happy and the club's not, you're probably a doormat. And if, you know, the club's really happy and the players aren't happy, you're probably either a disciplinarian or too over the top or, you know, not very supportive, but just force them to do stuff they don't want to do. So it's all about finding that balance. And I think, you know, I think Southampton for me was a learning experience where um, I probably got too close to some of the players in, in terms of, um, you know, having that, professional personal boundaries because you know it's their personal life but it's your job and it's quite a weird dynamic in that point where you know when I left I had players going oh can you just quickly help me with this and I'm like I work for a rival now like you need to get someone at Southampton to do that and they're like I thought we were mates and I'm like well yeah but like I did that because I was paid not because I'm a nice guy like you know I'm not doing it as a friend I'm doing that because I'm paid and, um, you know, it, it, I think, you know, what I learned from Southampton to West Ham was at West Ham, it was a very professional relationship with everyone. I didn't, you know, even members of staff, I didn't go for a drink or a dinner with anybody while I was at West Ham, not because I'm a, I'm a loner or anything like that. It was, 
I had my friends in London and I had my work colleagues at West Ham and we were, we were friendly, you know, when we traveled to games, we might have a drink as a staff or something like that, but it wasn't, it was never like friends. And then obviously when you leave a club, you can stay in touch with certain people and you get on better. But I think you have to let players really trust you um, and you have to obviously trust them and, and they, you need to let, you know, they've got to let you in their lives. Um, but also if you cross those boundaries, then you work for the club. And so, if there's a situation where it's a club arguing with a player and you'll get, you get caught in the middle, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to side with your employer and that can be harder if they think that you are their friends. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly a very tough line to uh, line to draw for sure. Hmm. Well, hanging on that. And in particular, I guess, uh, picking up on a word that you used uh, doormat. So I guess focusing on the more potentially bothersome side of the job, logistically speaking, as we've sort of yeah mentioned, it makes a lot of sense to, have someone in your role to help these new players, these new investments um, settle in and to keep the squad happy as well on top of that. But yeah, when and where does player care become babysitting? And can someone in your position be taken advantage of or is it all fair game in your world? I think I think what you've got to do is put yourself in their shoes a little bit where you say, if this is important to them, it should be important to me. And it doesn't necessarily have to be... Um, you know, my job is is about effectively to take the, the the distractions away from the players so they can focus on the games. So if that means I've got to pay all their bills, or you know, my department has to pay all their bills, then that's fine because you know, am I really going to get Marco Anatovic to sit on the phone and call up the council and set up a direct debit for his? No, it's not going to happen. So either I can either let I can say, well, Marco, you should have done it yourself, or we just get it done. And and that, I think that's. That's where it's like, if people want, if the players want to learn how to do things, we're always happy to teach them. Um, now, there are also times where, you know, a player's come to me and said, oh, you know what? I've forgotten my wife's birthday. Can you get some flowers dropped around in the next hour? And I'm like, it's five o'clock. I'm going home. You've, you've messed this up. You sort it out. You know, like, and that, but it just depends on the player. It depends on the relationship. It depends, you know, basically what happened there was he was hoping I'd get him out of jail. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This is on you. It wasn't a performance issue. It wasn't a player care issue. It was someone being a shit husband or partner or whatever it was. So in that situation, I'm very comfortable saying, no, absolutely not. Now, what I could, you know, what I think we did in the end was said, look, there's a couple of petrol stations on the way back. You can get some roses. But I think if you take those home, it'd be even more trouble. (laughs) Or here's the florist number, give her a call and see if she can sort you out and you deal with her directly. So, you know, it's not, and I think that's always been my philosophy is this no dot, 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 but where I won't say no to something, but it's saying no, but here's an acceptable solution that you're happy with, that I'm happy with, the club's happy with, and that's legal. So, you know, that's the kind of thing where, yeah, I could be, oh shit, oh God, I'll go, right, let me drive to London, let me find some flowers, let me drop them off. It takes two hours of my life and I'm like, and he's like, cheers, mate. But actually that's a learning opportunity, you know, it, it just, but again, if a player was really upset and calling me and crying, oh God, yeah, of course we'd get, we'd sort it out. So it just depends on the level and the player and, and the situation really. Now that was an interesting um, example with the, um, the flowers, but um, I guess on the moral side of player care, what, uh, are, are there ever points where, I don't know, would a, if a player came to you with something quite serious, I don't know if they'd broken a rule or something a bit more serious than forgetting flowers happened. Are you, yeah. As as someone in player care, when you well, when you were working for Southampton and West Ham, are you kind of expected to sweep stuff under the rug for players, or is there a point where you kind of have to, I don't know, take a step back or 
get, to get other mean, people involved? Or? If a player came to me and said, I've murdered someone, I'm not going to be there digging a hole and, and you know, rolling a rug into a hole, you know. At that point, I'm like, yeah, that's way out of way above my pay grade. Um, it's a, look, it depends what it is. You know, I think, you know, we've had players where, you know, they've clipped someone's car, you know, in a car park and they've gone, oh, I feel really bad. Can you sort this out? And I'll say, look, you know, how much of the damage? All right, a thousand pounds. All right, we'll give you 1500 quid and you just, you know, there we go, done. And that, that for me is like, it's fine. It just makes it quicker. It makes it easier. Their premiums don't go up and it, it doesn't become a thing. But, you know, these guys don't really tend to break rules much. I mean, you know, they get the old speeding ticket or, you know, a couple of players been caught, you know, breaching COVID rules, but you know, it's yeah. And that stuff's important to get to get right. But, you know, we don't see players like, you know, murdering people, battering, you know, again, if, if they, someone hit their wife, then I, I, I'm like, well, tough, you know, tough shit. What do you want me to do about that? You know, like you, you, we need to call the police. So, you know, it's, but that's so rare, you know, it, it is so rare. And I think, you know, you take every situation as it comes, but at the end of the day, like I'm protecting the club's reputation as well as the player's welfare. So I'd have to make a decision on that, probably get the, the club's legal department to, to sort of weigh in a little bit. And if, if I'm not sure, then I'd go to the CEO and sort of say, look, this is the situation. What do you think? And um, whether it's Karen Brady at West Ham or, or Martin Simmons at, at Southampton, they would say, okay, this is the way I think you should go. And, you know, but, I mean, you're, you're talking about literally never really happening. It, it's it's normally very mild stuff. And, you know, yeah, I'm on call 24 hours a day for, for emergencies, but that's normally like, you know, I've had burglaries, I've had car crashes, I've had, you know, dad stop breathing or whatever like that. But, you know, talking about maybe seven or eight in seven or eight years, I mean, it's literally not not many at all. And thankfully, yeah, not having to help anybody bury any bodies which is not, yet. Did. not, yet. <laughs> not yet yeah um as a quick little um change of pace before we jump into some final big questions we thought uh we'd flip the script turn the table and change the game for you hugo so we know that when players need help you're the guy they call but we want to know of your football friends essentially who would you call on for some hugo care so we have some hypothetical scenarios for you and we're looking for the name of a footballer you know personally through your work or just based off of their reputation um, even is all right. And we want to know who you would recruit for these respective tasks. So Joe's got the first one. Yeah. <laughs> right, okay. So the first one, Hugo. Now, you might not have a dog, but let's just say in this scenario you did. Or a pet. Who would, who would be the footballer you'd go to to walk your dog? Walk my dog? Hmm. Someone energetic, I would think. Uh, who's really quick? I don't know. Maybe like a Theo Walcott or something because he's, he's rapid <laughs> and he can walk it really quickly. Um, I'm trying to think what I've worked with who's really quick. Not really anyone. <laughs> yeah. Masuaku, maybe? Yeah, Masuaku. No, he, no, no. For, uh, Ryan, for Ryan Fredericks? Ryan Fredericks. Yeah, that's the one I was looking for. Ryan Fredericks. Yeah, Ryan Fredericks. And, he's a, and he has a dog, so there we go. Oh, there we go. He's got a career in dog walking if he wants it. Um, yeah. who would you have cook a meal for you? Ooh, cook a meal for me. I'm going to say Graziano Pella because he's eaten in all the finest restaurants. He's lived the high life as you can probably have seen if you follow him on Instagram. Um, his, his proposal over the, over Christmas was one of the most spectacular things I've ever seen to his girlfriend. Um, yeah, Graziano Pella, because he's Italian. He'd do good Italian food, and he knows what good food looks like. So, Graziano Pella. Probably makes <laughs> some decent Chinese food at this point, too. He's been playing Probably. over there for a while, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
I could sort of imagine him opening like a rival restaurant to the Salt Bay guy. He's got yeah. this kind of um, vibe going on. Um, but for the next one, Hugo, who would be your chauffeur? Ooh. My chauffeur? You know what? Jose Font, because he he loves, he's a big Formula One fan. I have gone go-karting with him once and he was quite good. So I'm going to say Jose Font. Lovely. Nice. Um, who's going to be the DJ at your party? Oh, that music's all terrible. I hate, I hate the change of music. It is so bad. Um, I see. I'm not a big like um, R&B fan or like rap fan, and it's always like Drake or. It, to be fair, to me, all the all the songs sound the same. So, um, oh, who would who would it be? Yeah, I'll pick James Ward Prowse because he loves the uh, he loves the Harry Potter theme tune, and we can uh, jam out to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great fact that we picked up from this podcast. Um, <laughs> Who um who would be um your wingman, Hugo? And it, it doesn't have to be a winger. You don't have to choose Nathan Redmond or someone like that. But yeah, who who do you get to be a wingman? Like like on a night out. Yeah, yeah, some sort of scenario Ooh. like that. I'm gonna go Charlie Austin because he loves a night out and he'd be a lot of fun. I don't know if he'd be a great wingman, but he'd be a good night out. So yeah, cool. Yeah, I can see that. I can see Charlie Austin being good fun on a night out. Um. Yeah. Moving to something not quite as exciting as a night out, but uh, gardening, for instance, or groundskeeping. Who would you have? Yeah, if you had, for instance, maybe like a little allotment or something, who's going to take care of that? Stuart Taylor, because he's an old man. The uh, the old goalkeeper, uh, the old Saints third choice goalkeeper. He's an old man and he likes to, uh, he'd be perfect for pottering around the garden. Nice. What about your travel agent? Oh, God. I tell you what, Graziano Pella has got some cracking hotel recommendations. I don't know if I can say the same one twice, but I have actually asked him before. Like, I'm going to Italy. Where should I stay? And he sends me these like seven star hotel that I definitely cannot afford. But uh, yeah, he he lives the high life, so I'm going to go Grazia again. Okay. Well, speaking of the high life, and don't necessarily incriminate anybody, but who's going to be uh, your accountant? Oh God, I don't think I trust any of them with anything academic. <laughs> Uh, someone boring. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a nice double-edged one. It's like a backhanded compliment. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to say Fraser Forster because uh, he's quite a serious guy, and he's—I uh, think he'd be—he could—he could think through things. I think he'd be all right. Nice. Well, maybe the next one wouldn't be so serious, but he might have. A, well, maybe it could be serious and have a good voice. Who would you sing karaoke with? Ooh. To be honest, I did film a Christmas um, kit, kit video where I sang karaoke with Maya Yoshida uh, dressed <laughs> as an elf. And that's probably one of those things that's going to come back to me and haunt me in the future. But it's still on YouTube. Uh, so I'm going to pick Maya Yoshida. All right. All right. And then just a couple more. Uh, putting yourself in our shoes and running your own podcast. Who's your co-host? <sighs> Who's funny? You know what? I'm going to say Mark Noble because he's a, got a, a real gift of the gab, and I actually I bounce off him quite well when we're when we're going at someone like like getting them. So I'd say Mark Noble. Great. Well, we've got one more of these questions for you, Hugo. And who would you um who would be your head of player care if you had to appoint someone? None of them. None of them. <laughs> you actually no no. I'm going to say Oriol Romeo because he is really really intelligent and really thoughtful and. He did. He liked to learn how to do things. So I'm going to say Oriol Romeo. 
Brilliant. Okay. Well, there we go. That was a bit of Hugo care. And now we, we know all the players that will do the very part. I've never been asked. I've done quite a few podcasts. This is definitely new. So fair play to you guys. There we go. We try our best. Um, and we've got, um, we've got a few more questions for you now, Hugo, before yeah. we end today. So um, Hugo, you are, um, you are an openly gay man working in football. Um, and it's obviously an industry that unfortunately is known for the fact that there are, well, very few openly gay players. Um, how does this current situation make you feel, given whilst, you know, our wider society isn't perfect by any stretch, it doesn't seem to operate in the same way um, when it comes to football? Uh, I don't know. I, I, to be honest, I don't really worry about it too much. I think the... the the bits that frustrate me are the sensationalized headlines in the in the sun or whatever that a player's about to come out and all of that. And I think, you know, there's always a, a massive sort of who is it, who is it, who is it? And I think the reality is that whoever comes out first is going to be massively well supported. It's going to make a fortune through endorsements and, and everything like that. So, you know, it's going to happen when it's going to happen. I think the more we try and like, when is it going to happen? It more pushes people away. You know, I, I think also though, you know, football is probably not a place where, um, you know, I think that, you know, the, the common statistic is 10% of the, of, of sort of the population is gay. I would imagine in football, it's probably less. I'm not saying there aren't any gay footballers, but you know, I'd imagine that, you know, I don't think, you know, one in, ten, one in 10 players is gay. I don't think we have two and a half gay players on every team I think that's un unrealistic but you know it's, it's going to happen and I, I think as long as it's a supportive environment and I and I know it would be you know I, I've I've never had any issues and to be honest like I get asked a lot of questions and we've had a lot of discussions you know with the players about various topics of you know and sometimes they ask me questions that are like I don't even know the answer to or you know they want to know really in depth about stuff and I'm like okay if you want that detail I'm happy to give it to you so you look I mean at the end of the day football squads are an incredibly diverse group you know you've got Senegalese guys sat next to Japanese guys sat next to Dutch guys Paraguayans whatever you know it's a very diverse work environment and at the end of the day everyone's just there to win the games and they don't really care who you're sleeping with and so you know would the fans really get away with it probably there'd be minorities of idiots on Twitter or you know in the stands but really most people don't care and most people would support that person so you know, in 2021, I don't think it's going to be an issue. And I, I think the less we focus on when's the next player going to come out, you know, the sooner it will happen, um, rather than kind of worrying about the fact that there aren't any right now. Mm. Well, not to, yeah, put, I guess, too much attention on this. As you've said, it's sort of, it's going to take care of itself. And when it happens, it'll, it'll happen. But when it does happen, for instance, as someone involved in player care, would those, would that cross over? Would it become a responsibility more so of, the player's agent or the club's PR department to kind of back the player or would player care would that yeah fall into your realm I think it, de it depends on the player and their relationship with their club or that you know whoever they feel most comfortable with I think there'd be a PR element to it the club would probably find out first anyway but you know it's you know if it came to me it would obviously make sense you know because I have that direct experience but it's it would be you know as with all these kind of things whether it's you know a police offense or coming out or getting married or whatever a lot of this stuff is stage management it's a combination of different departments usually the, the pr comms team the player care team you know the legal team not so much in this this example but you know it's often player care just kind of coordinating the different departments but at the end of the day it's something that's personal it's something that doesn't really affect 
what happens on the pitch. So, you know, just like people don't announce who they're dating, you know, if their new girlfriend, does it people need to announce their boyfriend? I don't know. You know, like I think if someone wants to and someone is ready for that limelight and ready to be that that role model, then great. But you know, I know a lot of gay people who are not willing to be role models. And like to be fair, like I found that quite uncomfortable in the fact that, you know, I, I was I was named on this top 100 LGBT trailblazers list, which was ridiculous for me because I was named next to like Tim Cook from Apple. And I'm like, okay, I think it's a bit of a stretch. And I, that, that's never what I tried to do, but I'm okay with it. But I just, I found that quite strange that people viewed me anywhere near that same sort of level. And I, I don't think I am, but it's, some people just don't want to be that. They, they don't want to have that personal life put out there. So I think, again, it, it'll happen when it happens. And, and when it does, they'll that person will be supported. But if it takes a couple of years, then great. You know, like Robbie Rogers obviously plays out in LA or played out in LA. Uh, Colin Martin's in San Diego. Thomas Hitzelsberg came out after he retired. So, you know, there are some and, and there will be some more in the future, 100%. Yes, indeed. And I'm sure we'll, whenever, you know, a high profile player comes out whilst they're in the Premier League, whatever, we'll, we'll all know about it. And yeah, hopefully it will all it will be a good thing. Yeah. Um, but we're going to end today. We're talking about the player care group, um, which you've obviously, um, you've left West Ham recently. And in December, you started that. So um, the player care group, as Kai mentioned earlier, is the UK's first consultancy group focused on player care, team operations and player well-being within sporting environments across the world. So this is obviously an exciting time for you. You said a bit earlier, obviously, with the January transfer window, it's a, a bit of a tricky month. But um, how, aside from that, how has sort of the first month been of running your own business? And um, what would be a successful year one for the player care group? I think, well, first of all, it's been a transition for me personally, because I, I've had, you know, every week of my the last seven years of my life dictated by a weekly schedule that's been sent out. So you know, I, I'm very used to getting to Sunday and then finding out which day I'm off on um, next week, if at all, um, and kind of living like that. And now I've got full control over that. So that's, you know, been a personal change. Um, but yeah, it's been a lot of interest. Um, obviously, you know, done some good PR around it, but I think the interest is there. It is pretty much unique in the in the industry. So, um, you know, had some good pitches already, some lots of clubs interested. So, you know, it, it, it it's... For, for week three, I think we're in there right now. It, it's been very, very positive. I think for me, I'd love to get, you know, maybe one or two Premier League clubs signed up um, and then probably a, 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 someone from another sport as well, a team from another sport. So, um, you know, I, I'm keen not to, to run before I walk, but, you know, football's my bread and butter. It's what I know best, but I think we could do some good work in Formula One, rugby, NFL, uh, MLB, MLS. So, for me, it's just trying to get that Premier League done, you know, get build that reputation, continue to build the, rep, the positive reputation and then try and branch out and see what we can do in other sports and around the world. And maybe not another sport, but maybe a European club, depending on if I can get Brexit work permits and all that nonsense. So, um, yeah, it's we will see. We will see. I, I'm not sure how we'll, what will look like in a year's time. That's for sure. We'll be paying attention to that and looking out for any developments. Best of luck to you and the rest of the team. Um, at the player care group I'm sure yeah it's going to be an exciting first year for you guys um, that well just about does it for today um, before I hand things off to Elsa who's going to be playing us out I do want to thank my co-host Joe and then an extra special thank you to our guest Hugo Schechter Hugo thank you so much for joining us it's really been a pleasure having you on the pod um, and yeah we hope that you've enjoyed being our guest as well
Yeah, it's been brilliant. Definitely one of the more entertaining ones I've done. So thank you very much, guys. Before we let you run away, how can our listeners uh, follow you personally, um, as well as, I guess, yeah, everything that's going on at the Player Care Group too? Yeah, so Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, all is Hugo Schechter, and then uh, Player Care Group at Player Care Group on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram, and then www.playercaregroup.co.uk. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Hugo. Uh, on our end of things, if you enjoyed listening to this episode, then please do follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at UnitedMatesFP is the handle. Find us on YouTube where you can put some faces to these voices. Just search for United Mates Football Podcast on there. Until next time, everybody, here's today's featured artist with some new music for you. Hi, I'm Elsa Tully, and you're listening to the United Mates Football Podcast. This is my latest single, Parasite. Parasite.